0: You are listening to the Aesthetic Vibes podcast, and I'm your host, Amy. I have a background working in a corporate environment for over 15 years. I'm a doctor, a lecturer, a lawyer, and a published author. This podcast is a look inside my brain. I cover relevant and totally irrelevant topics, ranging from self-help and advice to the spooky and scary, a little bit of true crime, mental health. I also like to tell some stories along the way. My goal is to spread aesthetic vibes whilst discussing these topics. I do like to end each episode with a lighter note, usually something completely ridiculous. Okay, with all that being said, let's hang out. episode 43 43 how the heck did I get to 43 okay anyway this episode will focus on that feeling of mm, a midlife crisis in addition to a little bit about being your authentic self today's a little bit of a, a lighter topic I'm just going to talk some shit uh, so anyway I hope you enjoy let's go A midlife crisis is an interesting thought process. What is this feeling of needing to do something different or implementing this new sense of who you are? It's very, very odd. A midlife crisis is really defined to be that transition of identity and self-confidence. It's said that it occurs, surprise, surprise, in middle-aged individuals. But what is middle-aged? I hope I live to at least be a hundred years old. So does that mean my midlife crisis should be happening when I'm 50, maybe 40, if I don't live that long? Oh my God, that's a, ter- that's a terrible thought. So are we all going to go through some sort of identity crisis? A midlife crisis really does give you some feelings, um, something in the realm of depression, There's maybe a bit of remorse, anxiety and achievement based or looking to uh, remain young. Or maybe it's that that uh, drastic changes to current lifestyle or feeling the wish to change past decisions and events. You think about that stereotypical man with the receding hairline, you know, divorcing his wife, buying new clothes, buying an expensive car with a sunroof. And there's always a sunroof. Whenever I think about some person going through a midlife crisis, it's someone driving like a small compact car with a (laughs) sunroof. For me, my feelings at the moment are not driven by past events or decisions needing a change. It's really a sense of wanting to finally do things that I personally want to do. In my case, I've been doing a lot of stuff for the past 15 years. So I'm really looking for a moment to come down from it all and breathe. I really feel like I've been doing way too much. And as I look back and realize, I have had many jobs at the same time. So I've been doing multiple things at once. And I think career wise, I've always been focused on, what's that next step? What's that next path? What's that next promotion? What's that, you know, it's always the next, the next, next, next. I don't think I've actually ever really stopped to look at what the hell is going on in this moment? What am I learning and how do I evolve from here? I recall having mentors and a lot of them. I would find someone who was a great leader and then be like, oh, cool, can we do some mentoring sessions? I think I did too much of that. (laughs) Uh, It focused my efforts on looking for the next opportunity. Don't get me wrong, that's fine. But is it healthy that I never really stopped? And every day I was pushing, 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 pushing. Probably not that healthy. I really did have that sense of I'll be happy when this happens. I'll be happy when that happens. And that's a terrible mindset to live with because you're constantly waiting on something else and you're forgetting to live in the present. It's like you're almost waiting for time to tick by till you get to that next point. And the worst part about it is once you get there, you take a look around and go, hang on a sec, I want to be here or I want to be there. And so then it's this vicious cycle of push, push, push. A midlife crisis is said to be a psychological crisis that's brought about by events in a person's life. So it's things like age, inevitable mortality, maybe a lack of accomplishments. But for me, it's not a lack of accomplishments. It's more so the opposite. It's, I don't think I've spent enough time living. I've just been working. I've always had something I needed to do. I remember taking holidays in the past, and I would be on holidays from work, i.e. my nine to five, but I'd be working at my other jobs or my degrees. So I've never really stopped. I've done four degrees back to back with no break in between. So for me, could I define midlife crisis as a feeling of being overloaded? Surprise, surprise, (laughs) there have been studies on the topic of midlife crisis. And these studies indicate that there are some cultures who are more sensitive to a midlife crisis than others. One study found that there's very little evidence that people undergo midlife crises in Japan and Indian cultures. This raises the question, is a midlife crisis mainly a cultural construct? And what is considered old for different cultures is significantly different in each culture. So these particular authors actually hypothesized that the culture of youth, the prolonging of youth practices and the emerging adult development phase in Western societies accounts for this popularity of a midlife crisis concept. So excellent, it looks to be cultural for me. <laughs> Brilliant. What these studies have found is midlife is often a time for reflection and reassessment. But this is not always accompanied by the psychological upheaval of popularity associated with the midlife crisis. So let's look into the topic a little deeper. I googled how long does a midlife crisis last for? For men, get this, three to ten years. Yes, for women, two to five years. Brilliant. <laughs> Excellent. I'm going to be feeling like this for up to five years. What? <laughs> Why? <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> so when we think about regrets people in a midlife crisis could be having, it's caused by the sense of aging and a combination of other things. It could be regrets over work or career, it could be uh, spousal relationship regrets, it could be maybe children getting older, um, aging and death of parents and physical changes associated with aging. I feel like I lived a lot when I was younger, so in my early 20s. You hear a lot about people getting into couples and marriage with kids at a super early age, but this wasn't for me at that time. I actually lived a lot. I partied a lot. I did a lot of fun stuff. I went out to nightclubs. I had an amazing time, so I feel like I lived really well in my 20s. I've done a lot of fun things, but when I progressed into more senior corporate roles in the workplace, I found that I became really serious and I remember not having any fun at work as I got older. It seemed to all disappear and there were days and if not weeks where I just simply couldn't remember laughing or smiling at work and surely that's not healthy, right? If you're not enjoying what you're doing and you're doing it so many hours a week that turns you into a different person almost. So when we look at men and women, a man's midlife crisis is more likely to be caused by work issues, whereas a woman's is by personal evaluations of their roles. And I think that's fitting for me. I am really only having the crisis in light of my professional career and the overall happiness in my life. I'm not referring to anything relationship-wise with my husband, but maybe friends come into the factor for me, people that I've allowed in my life, and I've spent a lot of time reflecting on this recently. I think I've made some terrible decisions on friends. (laughs) The people I have in my life now are the people I value. But there have been people in my life in the past who just weren't the best people. The only regret I have is not seeing them and the issues earlier and getting rid of them faster. I think that that would have preserved my peace a lot more And minimise the frustration and the feelings of exhaustion and exacerbation that I've had over the last few years. So, yeah, I really wish that I'd taken a a few more moments to assess who was in my life. What do theorists say on the topic of midlife crisis? So, the actual... um, the actual notion of a midlife crisis began with people like Sigmund Freud, who actually thought that during middle age, everyone's thoughts were driven by fear of impending death. Jungarian theory holds that midlife is key to being an individual, a process of self-actualization and self-awareness. Carl Jung also weighed in and saw that a midlife crisis is an integration of thinking, sensing, feeling, intuition. that he describes could lead to confusion about one's lives and goals. So the theory sounds pretty logical, right? It is crazy how you look the same. <laughs> you look the exact same than what you think that you looked when you were younger, but you've aged. It's kind of the same with my puppy. And I know that it happens for parents with kids that, you know, you don't see these changes. And then one day you stop and you look and you go, oh, shit, I look so much different than what I used to. You don't see these progressive changes, but every now and then you do kind of stop and go, shit. Um, so, So on the topic, what have I noticed around aging? Firstly, my back is always sore. Is that normal? I don't think it is. My back is always sore. I wake up, it's sore. I stand for too long, it's sore. I vacuum, it's sore. That can't be right. Is there anyone else out there whose back is constantly sore? I also need a minimum, a minimum of eight hours sleep a night. I remember going to work on two or three hours sleep. No no dramas, no concerns when I was in my early 20s. No issues, right? I could function. Everything was great. That is <laughs> not the case now. I need a minimum of eight hours sleep to function. If I have like five or six hours, I will wake up, I will have a headache, I won't be able to focus, it'll be terrible. So I need a minimum of eight hours sleep a night. I get really hungover really easily. I used to be able to drink, and yeah, I'd feel a bit hungover, but I'd bounce back really fast. If we drink, it will take ages for us to bounce back from the actual drinking. We get hungover and then we spend the whole day debilitated. So yeah, I don't know what it is. I used to be able to drink and stay up and then roll into work the next day bright bright as a daisy. I don't even know if that's a saying. Bright as a, uh, I I don't know. Anyway, leave it at bright as a daisy. <laughs> it makes no sense. Okay, something else that I think... <laughs> is associated with age, is do you guys have a favorite hot plate? So what I mean by that is on the top of your stove, do you have a favorite hot plate? So we've got five and I have a favorite one (laughs) and I really think that's a sign of getting older, the fact that you have a favorite hot plate, like a favorite, you know, where you heat your pans up on. We've got like a gas um, hot plate, five gas ones on, on top of the stove and there's one in particular that I really like. Is that normal? Okay, so I also have to be really careful not to eat too much greasy food, or I get an upset stomach. I used to be able to literally live off hot chips. <laughs> so like fries, like exclusively, no issues, no concerns. Uh, can't do that now. I eat greasy food and I feel sick for two days. Um, I also wear multifocal glasses. What the hell? I used to have uh, long distance vision issues. I think that makes you short sighted. I think so. Anyway, I used to have long, long distance issues. And then all of a sudden, short distance started creeping in. To going back last year, they fitted me with a pair of bifocals. And I wore them like when I was sitting in front of a laptop or a computer, um, when I was watching television. But you've got to move your eyes. I don't know. For those who, who've never had, multifocals or bifocals, you've actually got to move your eyes to the different parts of your glasses. So normally you would shift your head. So if you can't see um, the, you know, you've got closed captions on, which we we watch everything with closed captions. I don't know if that's another indicator, (laughs) but basically when you have your multis or your bifocals on, you shift your eyes. So if you want to see something close, you shift your eyes to the bottom. And if you want to see something at a distance, you shift them to the top. You don't physically move your head. You keep your head in the same position. Very inconvenient. Very, very inconvenient. So anyway, I had bifocals to start with. I'm now in multifocals. So this is wonderful. (laughs) Absolutely brilliant. And another one, I actually need to Google new like slang words. (laughs) you know, when you're young and you just, you're around people, they use words, you pick them up. It's all normal. I have to Google stuff. Like I see people using words and I have to Google it. Like I had to Google, (laughs) I had to Google what cap meant and woke. I Googled woke yesterday. I was like, what does woke mean? Um, I think that's a key indicator that I'm getting old. (laughs) So sounding more and more like I'm on the pathway to old aka middle of midlife crisis. I think linked to midlife crisis is this topic of your authentic self. So being your true authentic self means that you live and breathe in alignment with your actions And it goes further than what you do for a living or what possessions you own, but it actually comes down to your deepest values and beliefs at your core. Differences are generally encouraged in society. We are taught that if everyone was the same, the world would be a boring place. And I'm sure everyone's heard that saying. We are told we should be who we want to be, dress how you like, express yourself how you like. However, when we enter into society... We are later met with resistance. We are almost asked to conform or be like everybody else. So in the workplace, we are told, be your authentic self. However, (laughs) there is a standardized person most organizations are looking for. Let me give you a prime example. I worked at an organization where we were told religiously, be your authentic self. However... You needed to be this corporate individual that the organization expected. I conducted some research in the organization and I decided to profile personality types, which is linked to my thesis and my book. But ideally, the organization themselves did not profile personalities as part of recruitment. So it was a later stage thought process for me, and I was looking at the different types of people in different roles. I thought to myself, everybody kind of feels the same, or most people do in this organization. Most people present the same. So I profiled a big group of people. What I found in the sample, was a large sample, was nearly everybody in the organization was one personality type. This is insane. And I was using Myers-Briggs, so there's 16 different alternatives. Nearly everybody was the same one. They didn't do personality profiling as part of hiring. So it's not that they did a profile and they said, oh, we'll hire all of this type. That's not the case. How the hell did they manage to get the same person repeatedly with the same personality type? How is this an accident? You tell me because this shows me that there is a standard self they are looking for, a standard type of person. So if you are being your authentic self, it is sticking to who you are unapologetically and being genuine at all costs. But we're all different, right? However, for the most part, we're the same. So views will differ. The behaviors of an authentic person person ah, uh, speaking your opinions honestly and in kind of a healthy way um, I avoided this in the workplace unless there was something that really went against my values and beliefs but I really avoided trying to rock the boat let me let me just explain there's a difference between playing devil's advocate asking questions to challenge someone's mindset however speaking openly about opinions that perhaps were unvalidated or perhaps were unsubstantiated i avoided because most of the time people would disagree an argument would occur is it worth it no do i care what anybody else thinks no so i really avoided that one in addition these people make decisions that align with their values and beliefs. So I did this. If something was outside of my values and beliefs, I would flag it and say, hey, this makes me feel uncomfortable. But the organization had their own values. So regardless of what my values were, I was expected to conform to their values. So pursuing my passions, was something that I did in one sense, but not in a recreational or hobby-based environment. I really didn't pursue other things apart from academia and work. In addition, it's allowing yourself to be vulnerable and open-hearted. I did not allow myself to be vulnerable, and that is because it can be seen as a weakness in the workplace. So vulnerability for me would only really be displayed in a one-on-one environment with maybe my line manager. Uh, Also setting boundaries and walking away from toxic situations. I didn't do this. The organization itself could be described as toxic by some by some maybe not, maybe they've seen worse. But I also didn't do this with people. A lot of the times I would say, oh, you know, such and such is having a bad day. Or maybe they've interpreted that differently. Or I need to clarify or, oh, you know, I I better cut them some slack. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. If they're toxic, boot them. And I think it's clear toxicity becomes very, very clear And you will see that person is toxic by their actions and behaviours. So you really shouldn't be putting up with toxicity in really any form. So I was saying to my husband the other day, I actually feel like me and I haven't in years. Like I'm doing small things in my life that are me. I'm also saying no, (laughs) there are things I am just not doing. This is different from the other me because I would say yes to everything for fear that I would miss out on a great opportunity. But how is this a healthy pathway to being my true self? It's not. I think I can safely say, well, <laughs> I'm going to go with no. I'm going to say, no, I'm not having a midlife crisis. I am going to continue to call it my moment of pause. And I think. This is an important stage that most people should go through. I feel like I lost myself in my journey years ago and I wonder how many other people have lost themselves. So if you feel a little lost right now, I encourage you to ask yourself a few questions. Do you voice your opinions? Do you act within your own values and beliefs? Do you pursue your passions? Do you set boundaries? Are you the real you? Or maybe are you somebody else? Or maybe do you have multiple hats or faces that you put on to meet multiple needs? Are you surrounded by the best people? So what am I doing? I am doing things I enjoy, saying no. I'm doing passion projects. I'm sleeping. I am cooking. I am spending time with my little family, i.e. cat, dog, husband. Um, and I am working on expression through appearance and actually dressing how I want and doing things that I want to reflect who I am. So any other recommendations for me, (laughs) things I could or should be doing? Anybody else out there kind of feeling like they've lost themselves as well? Uh, hopefully this has shown you, you are not alone. (laughs) There are many of us probably out there going, what the hell am I doing with my life? Um, I encourage you to reach out and um, if you want to have a chat, let me know. Um, But yeah, what's the verdict? Um, Maybe it's a partial midlife crisis. I don't even know if that's a thing. Uh, So better ride this out for the next two to five years. (laughs) Wish me luck, guys. with every episode we end on a lighter note however this week we're going to end on a spooky note in light of October. I okay so I get it in Australia we don't really celebrate Halloween it's not really a thing like yes there's decorations around and some people might but it's not really a thing like Christmas where everybody gets involved this year is going to be different so I am interested in the spooky and the scary. One thing I'm super interested in are haunted dolls. I love the fact that they're creepy. (laughs) I would love to have some, but my husband would not let me. So I'm sure everybody's heard about Annabelle from The Conjuring, uh, the movie series, I think it is now. There's like so many of them. Have you heard of... Akiku the doll. I hope I pronounced that right. If I didn't get that right, I'm sure someone's going to let me know. But Akiku is what I think it's called. Okay, so this doll is a small child looking doll. Okay, (laughs) what is a small child you ask? A small child is one that doesn't stand very tall. I do not know how old kids are by looking at them. They all look the same age to me. Um, I can tell a baby from a toddler from a child but if you were to say to me oh and you pointed to a kid and said how old's that kid I would say I don't know because they all look the same anyway (laughs) so this doll was bought by um, a 17 year old we're going to call him Suzuki that's his last name but I'm not even going to try with his first name it is not where it's at for me (laughs) so this doll was bought by Suzuki in 1918 and he bought this doll for his two-year-old sister Okiku so he was touring the region at the time some sort of maritime exhibition and basically he saw this doll and he was like wow this doll's amazing she looks great I love her her eyes she's great the doll was sitting in the shop window and Suzuki walked in saw her and just went oh my god this is perfect my sister's gonna love this and so he used what was left of the money that he had to buy this doll you'll note that Okiku is going to be referred to twice Okiku is the two-year-old sister but it's also the doll's name so I'll refer to Okiku the doll and then Okiku which is just the little girl so the Okiku doll is about 40 centimeters tall and it wears this traditional kimono. It's got this really dark black hair and it was roughly sitting at shoulder length in like a traditional Japanese hairstyle and her eyes were pitch black. The doll was said to be very mesmerizing and enchanting, something that some people described as almost taking your breath away because it was so beautiful. So Suzuki goes back home gives the doll to his little sister. Apparently, his little sister falls in love with the doll immediately. It becomes her favourite toy and her best friend. She plays with the doll every day, takes it everywhere. It was basically like another little girl. She treated it like it was human. She would talk to it, she'd feed the doll, and she'd sleep with it. And then she eventually decided to call the doll Akiku as uh, a mirror of her own Name and herself. The doll never left the little girl's sight. I'm going to pause here. I actually had a doll made for me by a family member and I've still got her. She's creepy as hell looking and I named her my name. So I kind of get it, right? It might sound weird that the little girl's just named it her own name, but this doll is. Like it's referred to as Amy Lee, like it's sitting in our guest room <laughs> of all places. Sorry, guests. <laughs> she's creepy looking and she's only wearing one sock. But, the, like, I get it. I called my doll Amy Lee. So, anyway, anyway. A year later, tragedy strikes. In 1919, the sister Okiku dies. So, yellow fever was rampant and it looks like she actually contracted yellow fever and she died gasping for air. She actually died with the doll in her arms. She's about three years old at this point. So the family wanted to bury the doll with the little girl. However, the government prevented this. They said, no, you are not to put a doll to rest with the little girl. <sighs> Rough rough. So Akiko the doll was then put on the family's altar which is a common practice in some Japanese households and it's done to commemorate the dead. So there, it was almost like a little shrine that celebrated their daughter and had this um, you know mark of passing into the afterlife. One day the family started to notice that the doll's hair was getting longer So this little traditional shoulder length cut with this perfect um, like updo that it had um, and these perfectly blunt neat end cuts now started to be tangled with split ends down past the doll's waist. The hair itself was different colors and different parts of the hair felt differently. The family claims they started to dream of koku and sometimes the doll would appear by their side in their bedrooms in the morning. They also had issues with lights flickering on and off, there was banging in the house, noises, strange voices and then whenever they got closer to things like the little girl's birthday or the day of her death things would get worse and worse. Over time the family was pretty much certain that The doll had the daughter's soul trapped within it. So in 1938, the family actually relocates to a different district. They're fine with the doll. They've grown very fond of it. They they think it's their daughter's restless spirit. They look at it as something that's unique and special. Um, However, they did not want to take the doll with them because they feared that what was actually fueling the magic in the doll would be taken away from it should it be relocated. So there was a temple which had heard stories of the doll. Um, there were priests, which I find really weird. Like this just doesn't seem right. If it's haunted, why would priests want it? Like I just, I don't know. Anyway, there were priests at said temple and they happily accepted the doll started taking care of it. And then over time, they saw the hair growing and they were like, what the hell? So, get this, the priests cut some of the doll's hair off and they sent it off for analysis. We're in 1938. I don't know how advanced analysis is. Anyway, it was determined that the hair was of a human child. What the hell? (laughs) They had to trim the doll's hair regularly to stop it from excessively growing. As years passed on, the doll's fame has grown, right? And her powers, they claim, have further developed. So she is a lot bolder now and she invades dreams of the priest and those who come to visit her. They say she's stronger, her hair grows faster, and she's scarier than ever. People claim that they can see the doll's mouth slowly opening she's got closed lips so it's slowly bit by bit opening and apparently if you look really close she has baby teeth growing in her mouth well that's a wrap i hope you enjoyed today's episode It was a little bit of a lighter look into what the hell is going on with this midlife crisis situation. Hopefully you enjoyed my little story about Okiku the doll. Very, very creepy. Join me next time when we go back into the spooky and scary. We are going to venture back in there in light of Halloween in the month of October. In the meantime, let's hang out on social media. Hit me up at Aesthetic Vibes Pod. Drop me an email at, at outlook.com. Visit my website, aestheticvibespodcast.com. Hit up my TikTok, Dr. Ames Kelly. Okay, until next time. Bye.